I would ask that you turn with me then to our text this morning, which comes from the Gospel of Mark, as we will be looking today at chapter 5 and reading verses 21 to 34. So Mark chapter 5, verses 21 to 34. Brothers and sisters, please hear with me then the reading of God's Word. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about Him, and He was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing Him, He fell at His feet and implored Him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, and fell down before him, and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith, has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Thus far is the reading of God's Word. Well, brothers and sisters, have any of you ever felt at some point in your life like you were at the mercy of others? I assume that we've all probably felt that way. And so I can imagine you might be able to recall what that felt like. Not having control over a situation. It probably made you feel unsettled, uncomfortable, scared, anxious, and without peace. I feel like many Americans today are living with anxiety and are without peace with what's been taking on, going on with our uh, presidential election. They have to rely on other Americans and millions upon millions of other Americans to vote in the same way that they voted in order to get the result that they wanted. And so they were anxious and they had no peace about that. And yet, on whatever side you came up on, they thought that if they got the result that they were looking for, then with it would come the peace 
they so desperately sought. And yet, it won't. Within four years' time, everyone will be right back to where they were a few days ago. Right? Unsettled, scared, and without peace. But that's because the peace that they receive is a temporal peace. We might say it's a, it's a hushing of the heart, but it's not long-lasting. The type of peace they're looking for cannot be found in government. Right? It can't be found in human relationships. It can't be found in your job. The type of peace that people yearn for and desire, that abiding peace that doesn't come and go based on who's in the White House, or what your bank account says, or if you're healthy or sick, can only be found in Jesus Christ. This is why Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 4, verse 7, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You see, this peace only comes from the God of peace. It originates in Him as He possesses perfect and infinite peace by His very nature. And so He is rightly called the God of peace. And He is the one we must go to because He is the one who gives us peace, which means that that peace is a gift of God's grace, which flows through Christ. Which is why Paul can say to the church in Colossae, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And it's because it's divine peace that even believers, we can't fully grasp and comprehend that peace, which is why it surpasses all understanding. Because it's a spiritual peace. It can't be found in earthly things. And unfortunately, for many, it's not until something significant happens and that that peace they have is shaken. And when all other options to get more of that peace are exhausted and fail, that they finally look outside of themselves, that they finally look outside of the world, and they finally look up to heaven, recognizing something is wrong. You see, the reason for that, though, is that one must be humbled before that can occur. So long as people say the problem is those people, or the problem is this system or this institution, Right, So long as people think that they're good and just and righteous, they will never look up towards heaven. It's not until we become displeased with ourselves that we understand our own impurity and unrighteousness and vileness and inadequacy that we will ever be driven to the God of peace. And yet, we only discover God to be the God of peace when He is found in Christ Jesus, right? who is the Prince of Peace. Right? Peace is only obtained in Christ, which means, yes, only Christians can have true, abiding, and everlasting peace. And this is what the woman who touched Jesus' garment discovered in her encounter with Him this morning. And it's this encounter that we're going to focus most of our attention on. And we're going to do so under three main points. So the first point is, Christ our only option. Christ our only option. 
The second point is Christ apprehended by faith. Christ apprehended by faith. And the third point is Christ alone satisfies. Christ alone satisfies. Now, our text today begins kind of funny, right? Because it starts with one story, and then that story gets interrupted by another story, and it's not until later we return to the first story. But we see initially in verse 21 that Jesus crosses over back to Capernaum from the country of the Gerasenes that we were reading about last week. And we see initially there's a much different reaction to Jesus, isn't there? Right? People are, are happy to see Him. We're told that crowds form around Him once again. And out of that crowd, Mark points out a ruler of the synagogue named Jairus who comes and falls down before Jesus' feet. Now we have to understand who the ruler of the synagogue is. So he's not to be thought of as like the leader, or how we might think of you know, leaders of the church. So he's not the, the pastor of the synagogue, but rather he is the supervisor of the synagogue. So he's not a rabbi. He doesn't teach in the synagogue. He supervises the synagogue. And so it's not unlikely that perhaps he's run into Jesus many times as Jesus spent his early ministry in Capernaum. And so it's not uh, unthinkable that he has heard Jesus proclaim the word, that he's seen Jesus perform these miraculous works. And so he's very familiar with the man that he has run to and cast himself down before. And we're told that he, he throws himself before Jesus and implores him earnestly, saying in verse 23, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. Now this phrase, at the point of death, means to be at her last breath, or she is at her last gasp. And so what I think the text suggests is that this isn't just something that suddenly happened, but she probably has some sort of condition, and now it's worsened, where she's in her last hour. And so Jairus knows if anyone is able to cure his daughter in her last hour, It is Jesus. He understands that Jesus is his last and only option if he hopes to ever see his daughter for another day. And so he urges Jesus on. And he lays before his feet asking that he will come to heal his daughter. Isn't that like most loving parents what they would do? What you would do for your son and daughter? Cast yourself down before his feet saying and doing everything that you can that he would see the urgency of the matter. And in this, in this act of, by Jairus, we see really a, a demonstration of faith. We see a demonstration of faith by Jairus. Right? He knew that if Christ was to come to his home and touch his daughter, she would be healed. And yet, what Jesus does next will test the faith of Jairus. Right? In verse 24, we're told that Jesus agrees to go with him And so then you can only imagine the great sigh of relief that overcomes Jairus. And then, all of a sudden, moments later, that relief turns to panic. Because what are we told? As Jesus heads out with him, as he's going to heal his daughter, all of a sudden, this crowd forms around Jesus, they're pushing up against him, and Jesus stops. He stops. And we're told he stops because this woman who suffered from a terrible bleeding condition, has touched him. 
And so you can imagine now what Jairus is thinking. Why are you stopping? We're supposed to be headed back to my house. She doesn't have long to live. If we don't go now, it will be too late. But Jairus' problem is the problem that we all suffer from, isn't it? We all expect God to work according to our plan. But here, like many times with Jesus, He has another plan. And He doesn't bend His will to accommodate our plan or to accommodate our time frame or the speed at which we want Him to go. No, Jesus executes the will of the Father to perfection because it's the will of the Father that Jesus has come to do. Not Jairus' will, not your will, and not my will. Now Mark tells us a little about this woman in verse 25. He says that she had a discharge of blood for 12 years and that she went about to all different physicians seeking a cure, spending all that she had, and yet she was not better at all. In fact, she got worse than she was when she started. Now we have to understand though why a woman like this wouldn't approach Jesus like Jairus did or like the rest of the crowd did and why she wanted to be unnoticed and to sneak around back of Jesus and touch Him in order that she might be healed. Okay, What we have to understand is in Leviticus chapter 15, verses 25 to 33, we are told that if a woman has a discharge of blood, non-menstrual related, and it continues constantly that she is deemed ceremonially unclean so that everything she touches is unclean. Everything she sits on is unclean. When she lays her head down at night in her bed, it is unclean. And so we can understand then why she says to herself in verse 28, if I only touch his garments, I will be clean. She was ashamed. She didn't want to be noticed. She didn't want everyone to see her in all of her shame and misery. And yet the picture we ought to see upon hearing the description of her and her miserable condition is our very own miserable condition. How sin likewise has made us unclean. How sin has caused us to look around trying to fill voids and ease pain. How we turn to so many other things to find joy and happiness and peace and comfort just as this woman turn to many different cures and doctors and ways to get healing before coming to Christ. And yet Jesus says to helpless sinners like you and like I, what Jesus says to this helpless father and this helpless woman is that in He alone we will find peace and comfort and relief. Even if like this woman, we wait to go to Jesus only recognizing finally at the end that He is our last and only option. Jesus didn't hold it against this woman for seeking all these other cures out before finally recognizing Jesus is the only place I have to turn to. He didn't get angry with her. He doesn't rebuke her, does He? No. He receives her lovingly. He receives her lovingly. He was pleased that although it took her some time to recognize, she finally came to see that Jesus is the only way. And that is when Jesus is pleased. right? When sinners understand our need to run to Him if we are ever to escape our sin and misery. And a lot of times, that comes through great struggle and heartache, doesn't it? 
It takes for many people near-death experiences, terminal illnesses, before they finally run to Christ. And a lot of times, I think that the father of lies is behind the hesitation of people to come and approach Christ. And so instead, they sit and they wallow in their filth and misery, just as this woman did. They feel shame over their sin. They think God will not have them. And Satan plays upon that in their minds. He says, you are a bad sinner. He reminds them of the heinousness of their sin. He says, you're so bad, Christ will never have you. But we know that's not the case. As Jesus graciously invites sinners to come to Him with the promise of what? There is no sin they commit that His blood cannot cover. And even as believers, do we not experience guilt and shame ourselves because of sin? Take for example, maybe you go two weeks, you've just been busy, and so you don't read your Bible, you don't pray for two weeks, and now something significant happens in your life, and you want to turn to Christ in prayer, and you're scared. You say, will He even listen to me? Because I've been so disobedient to Him. Why should I even try and bring this petition to His throne? But it's in these moments that the Puritan Thomas Manton tells us that we are to use what he calls gospel logic. We need to take note of this. We are to use, he says, Satan's temptations to our advantage. We are to use Satan's temptations to our advantage. Okay? We are to turn our humiliation and our disgrace that Satan puts before our eyes and that he whispers in our heart, and we are to turn it into motivation, into seeking God, recounting the promises of Christ. Okay? Which, for example, is like this. Satan says to you, Christ will never have you because you are too wretched a sinner. And our response ought to be, well, Jesus says, come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. That is gospel logic. Okay? This is what both Jairus and this woman have come to understand because they've exhausted all other options. They've tried all earthly remedies and they've found no satisfaction. They have come to realize that Jesus is the sinner's only option. And so the question is, have you? Have you come to see that? Do you recognize that? Or do you still turn to earthly means to seek that peace that you long for? Or have we come to realize and understand that it is Christ and He alone that we are to turn to if we need a cure for our spiritual ailment? But how do we receive Jesus then? Well, this takes us to point number two, which is Christ apprehended by faith. You see, we are told in verse 24 that this great crowd forms around Jesus and throngs about Him. Right? Throngs about Him. This word is not used carelessly or it's not insignificant. To, to be thronged about is to mean that you are pressed upon. So Jesus is being pressed upon by all these people. Mark is telling us that a bunch of people are touching Jesus for a reason. 
He is telling us this in order that we might be able to differentiate the touch of this woman from the touch of all others. That we might ask ourselves the question as we read this text, why are all these people touching Him and only she is healed? It is because she sought out Jesus with a deep sense of her own need for Him. Believing that Jesus' power was so great that all she needed to do was lay hand to His garment and she would be healed. She came to Jesus knowing her helplessness and seeking His mercy. Martin Luther says of this woman that she believes that divine omnipotent power resides in Jesus and that He can answer the secret unspoken trust of her heart. She was healed and she alone because she alone came by faith. Now it wasn't her faith that healed her. It wasn't something she did that brought about her cure. But rather it was her faith that drove her to Christ to receive the cure. She believed Him. She believed in who He proclaimed Himself to be in her heart. But this is why Jesus doesn't just let her go away unnoticed. Because she, like all believers, are not only to believe who Jesus is in our heart, but likewise all must confess that Jesus is Lord with our lips. And this is why we read then in verse 30, and Jesus perceiving in Himself that power had gone off for Him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched My garments? Now many people get confused when they come to a text like this. They ask, how can Jesus not know who touched His garments? And there are really kind of two uh, Christian responses uh, that, that you can have. Uh, the first one is the, is the one that I take, and that is this, that Jesus is not ignorant of who touched Him. He's not saying who touched me because he doesn't know who touched him. Because Jesus is the one who called her to himself. Jesus is the one who healed her by his power. So surely Jesus knew who she was. And so he's not asking out of ignorance. He's asking to draw out of her a confession of faith. That is why he is asking. Some people interpret this text wrong because they don't understand. They don't have a good grasp on the hypostatic union. And so they collapse the two natures of Christ or they separate them so much right? that they come to then to the conclusion, what? That, well, Jesus can't be God. Or that, or that Jesus has set aside His divinity to only exercise Himself in His humanity. But the Reformed have rightly understood that you can't do that. You can't separate His two natures. You can't collapse His two natures. Rather, what we do is we distinguish the two natures in the one person of Christ. And so that the other view that some Christians could take in a verse like this is that to see in that one human divine work in healing this woman, that each nature is doing the very thing that belongs to it. Okay, So that Jesus, as Son of God and omnipotent, heals this woman as His power comes out from Him. And yet at the same time, in His human knowledge, He is limited. Right? Throughout the life of Christ, we see this, don't we? Jesus gaining knowledge, wisdom, understanding, which is why then they say He can ask, who touched me? 
Because Mark's speaking according to his divine nature and that he healed him. And he's addressing his human nature when he says, who touched me? And yet we see his disciples in verse 31 even scold him for asking the question. They say, you see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say, who touched me? They're saying to Jesus, everyone's touching you. What are you talking about? But the woman knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. Which is why she spoke up and admitted that it was her. In verse 33 we're told, the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before Him and told Him the whole truth. You see, this is why I believe that Jesus knows exactly who this woman was. Because He's asking her for a purpose, right? He wants her to confess Him before not only Himself, but before the crowd. Tell them what I have done for you. That is what Jesus is doing here in this encounter. And it wasn't to shame her. And it wasn't to scandalize her, but it was to let her know that she could no longer live in hiding and in secret. But now, being cured by her Savior, she must stand with Him. She must stand with Him. What does Jesus say in Mark chapter 8, verse 38? If anyone is ashamed of Me, I will be ashamed of them when the Son of Man comes in glory. You see, none of us can expect to have Christ in our hearts secretly if we refuse to confess Him before men. There is no such thing as a closet Christian. And Jesus is making her well aware of that. Now the other reason that Jesus stops her is in order to point out to her that it wasn't because she touched His garment that she was healed, but because she came to Jesus trusting in Him. Right? She needed to know why she was healed. Jesus provided her fuller knowledge so that she didn't walk away with a superstitious idea that just laying a hand on His cloth is what made her better. And we see that today, don't we? People watch those TV evangelists and they say, hey, if you send this big hefty check in, even though you're dying from some terminal illness, we'll send you a special hanky or a cloth and it's going to make you all better. But Jesus says, no, it wasn't my cloth that made you better. It was I who healed you. She had to know it was Jesus' power and not the power of His clothes that healed her so that she wouldn't walk away confused and unaware. And we must look, brothers and sisters, at what happened here. And we must see what the nature of faith is. We must see in this encounter what the nature of faith is. Faith comes like this woman did. Empty hands. Looking to Jesus to receive everything. Knowing that there is nothing that we can offer Him in return. That is faith. And faith is what should make us come to Christ every day for all that we need. As we see that Jesus is the rewarder of such faith, even if it's weak and shaky faith. Even if it's weak and shaky faith. And when we do that, Christ will strengthen that weak and shaky faith, just like He did this woman. But know that Christ is only apprehended by faith. In order to lay hold of Christ, it comes by faith alone. As Jesus says to her in verse 34, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. 
You see, that faith that Christ inspired in her is the faith that drove her to Him, which is the faith that caused her to touch Him. It was faith in Christ that brought her to the feet of her Savior that day. It was faith that Jesus used as the instrument to heal her that day. So that she no longer has to keep away from people because she is unclean. She didn't have to be ashamed and hide, but now she can go out in the world and live her life in peace. This brings us then to our third and final point this morning, which is Christ alone satisfies. We started this morning by pointing out all the various things and ways people try to find peace. Those are the same things that we all sought to find peace in. This is the same things that this woman tried to find peace in. That's earthly things and by earthly means. But what we discovered, just like she discovered, and the thing that we try to tell others about, is that your soul will never quiet without Christ. Because Christ alone satisfies our souls. Christ alone satisfies our souls. You want to know how to live with peace in a broken world? In one where there's violence and death and sickness and suffering and hatred among image bearers going on every day? You turn to Christ in faith for that is the only way we will ever have it. You see, brothers and sisters, there will continue to be unrest in the hearts of individuals because sin remains in the hearts of individuals. Sin does not allow for peace. Sin does not allow for your soul to find rest. This is why we must turn to Christ as He alone satisfies. And for those redeemed by His blood, He will bring us that peace, that rest, that renewal, and that reconciliation into our life. He will calm your restless soul. This is why even as Christians, when we sin, we know that God's not just going to cast us aside. That we don't lose favor with God. That He doesn't stop loving us because we have found peace in the blood of Christ. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, we are told this, speaking of Christ, but He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. That's the peace Jesus sent this woman back into the world with. That's the peace He sends all of us into the world with. As Jesus breaks our bondage, heals our spiritual sickness, forgives our sins, causes our spirits to quiet, assures us of His love, and grants to us free access to His throne of grace. And so I ask, how can we as believers not walk in peace in this world with all of that? The world is discontent and unhappy. They're constantly complaining. Always seeking to find satisfaction in different things. Not listening and ignoring the words of Jesus in John chapter 6, verse 35, when He says this, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to Me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in Me shall never thirst. In Psalm 107, verse 9, we're told, 
For He satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul fills with good things. You see, people will will remain unsatisfied and without peace in the world until they realize that all they have is sin. Everything they need is in Christ. And to turn to Him and trust in Him alone for salvation. And this is exactly what the woman in our story did. This is why she walked away not asking for one single solitary thing more. She had all that she needed. Christ made her whole. He satisfied the longing of her soul. And so we have to ask, has your soul been satisfied by Christ? Do you live with the peace of Christ? Has Christ spoken peace into your hearts? Because for the saints, Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives you, do I give to you. You see, this means that the peace of Christ is not subjective like the peace of this world. It's not a feeling that we get. But it's the objective reality that we now know we have reconciliation with God because of what Christ did on the cross at Calvary. He took away our uncleanness. He made us clean. He washed us in His blood. And this is what He did for this woman. He took away that uncleanness. And now she departed from Christ and entered into new life. That is that newness of life that we all have entered into who have trusted in Christ alone for salvation. And as those who have new life and who have in our souls found peace and satisfaction, it is incumbent upon us now to strive to become more acquainted with that peace and satisfaction. Because we all know that just because we have peace, that doesn't mean we're always sure of the peace we have. And I think you get what I'm saying, right? Just because we have peace, doesn't mean that we're assured of the peace that we have. The Christian, their peace oftentimes goes like this. It fluctuates. Many times it's just like the world. But the peace that we ought to have is described for us in Psalm 46 verse 2 where we're told this, Therefore, we will not fear though the earth give way. That's the type of peace we ought to have. In verse 10 of that very same psalm, we are told to be still and know that I am God. That's the type of peace that we should have, no matter what's taking place in our nation. And so the soul that wants peace is the soul that is in constant communion and fellowship with God. The greater the fellowship, the greater the peace. And yet, we must likewise know that our sin oftentimes impairs that peace. Our sin oftentimes impairs that peace. And so we must be humble and quick to confess our sin whenever we perceive it, so that that peace can be restored. And then lastly, brothers and sisters, we must remember to give Thanks to God. This world, there's so much unrest. And yet God in His eternal counsel of peace ordained that in Christ Jesus, you and I would have satisfaction in our soul. So that we are no longer in need of any spiritual good, but in fact we find it all in plenty in Jesus Christ who supplies to us every spiritual grace you and I 
could ever need. Please, if you will, bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We pray, Father, that You would speak Your peace into our hearts this day. That we would not be tossed to and fro like the unregenerate man. That we would not behave with such worry and anxiety and fear like the world does but that we would rest assured no matter what occurs in our land and across the globe, everything is working according to Your will and purpose, and it is all working out for our good and benefit. So please, Father, we plead with You. Let us strive after that peace more assuredly this day. And we ask all this in Christ's name we pray. Amen.